everybody. Welcome to the Energy Newsbeat Podcast. My name's Stu Turley, President and CEO of the Sandstone Group. We got us a real treat today. I've got Dr. Robert Brooks, and he is the founder and chairman of RBAC. And uh, you've been in there about 33 years. Welcome, Dr. Brooks. Well, thank you very much, Stu. It's nice to be on your program. Oh, I'll tell you what, I've, I really have enjoyed getting to uh, know you guys through your son and uh, Cyrus. But you have been kind of in the business for a little while. We both have gray hair. You have hair for our podcast listeners. I don't. But tell us where you started from. And uh, I want to ask you one thing. What did you do your uh, doctorate in? Okay, uh, so I'll do that first and then I'll go back to the beginning. You bet. Uh, So, yeah, my doctorate is in a field um, was at the Sloan School of Management at MIT. And the um, yeah, the major was operations research, which uh, has nothing to do with cutting people up, by the way, or, uh, you know, anything like that. It more has to do with actually, you might say, applied mathematics. It originally came out of uh, World War Two, actually, uh, when uh, the army needed to figure out how to optimally move cargoes and weapons and people and whatever else around the world. And uh, so they got some mathematicians together and they figured out, well, this is how you apply mathematics to that problem. And so this was the operations part, you see. So they were doing operations research and eventually became optimization and various other kinds of things. So um, yeah, as far as uh, the beginnings of you know what I'm doing now, which has to do with uh, development of and making available of analytics capabilities uh, to the generalized energy industry. And what I mean by generalized is not just uh, participants in the energy industry, uh, but also consultants that work in the industry and also government uh, agencies that are related to energy. So, you know, basically anything that has to do with the energy industry. Yeah, it's a long time ago. You're right about that, Stu. And actually, even before, you know, I was uh, a student there in the Sloan School at MIT, uh, learning about energy economics, which was like the minor I had. And so operations research with uh, energy economics. Um, But before that, I was actually sort of peripherally interested, you might say, in energy, you know, back in the 60s. The 60s was a very interesting time period. Right. Uh, for those of us like you were talking about who uh, who actually got a chance to experience that. So I grew up in a, a little town in Northern California called Sunnyvale. And uh, this was in what was called the Santa Clara Valley, but it got superseded by Silicon Valley. So it's, it's part of what we call Silicon Valley now. Uh, but mm-hmm. there was um, one of the uh, industries that moved into uh, Sunnyvale, which prior to this was a dairy town. Basically, it had dairies and, and farms and that sort of thing. Uh, but uh, Lockheed built a huge plant there with, uh, you know, and employing 20,000 people pretty close to the Naval Air Station, often called Moffett Field, that my father was assigned to because my father was in the Navy. So that's how we got to Sunnyvale. But um, so there was always this, um, you know, this thing about space. And I was very interested, actually, I wanted to be an astronaut and I wanted to be a space scientist and so forth. And and so my personal education, you might say, my self-education had to do largely with that with that field. Uh, So 
for various reasons, uh, as I went to college, I kind of got, uh, what should I say, I, I fell out of love with that because of the, you know, basically the Vietnam War. Uh, I started seeing, hey, you know, this this stuff is used in a very destructive kind of way. And I didn't want to participate in that. Uh, but I did uh, get interested in something that I read about in a paper that was something called the satellite solar power system that an idea that uh, Peter Glazer came up with. Uh, from a company called Arthur D. Little that was in uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts. So I was actually in Austin, Texas at this time and was actually doing a master's degree in physics at this time, uh, which was also another interest of mine. And I thought, wow, that's interesting. This idea that you could put these giant satellites in space and they could collect solar energy all the time because they were not really in the dark, you know, in the dark. And then they could beam this energy down to the planet is microwaves. So I thought, wow, this is like space, but it's energy and it's solar energy and it's clean and it's not oil and gas and all this nasty stuff. So this would be very interesting. And um, also there was another thing that was very interesting that kind of tied in with this, which was there was a guy around, you probably remember, not very well known these days, but uh, very well known at that time named Buckminster Fuller. And Buckminster Fuller was a philosopher, self-taught philosopher scientist who invented the geodesic dome, uh, which, you know, there's a lot of them around. Uh, But he had this idea that the way that you solve the problem of intermittency with solar energy was you built a uh, DC, high voltage DC line around the North Pole. Okay, and then you tie that into you know, with stringers that might go down uh, to Canada and to Russia and to Europe mm-hmm. and China and all around like this. And so as the earth rotates, you know, somebody's always getting solar power. Right. And therefore, again, you can solve this problem that, you know, day and night problem. You can have solar mm-hmm. energy a- everywhere. In any right. case, these were all very like huge projects too. you know, and, oh, and yeah. I, I didn't really understand at that point, I was not sophisticated enough in my knowledge to understand what kind of costs would be involved in doing these things and and how abstract that they really were, even though they were kind of cool ideas. So when I went to graduate school at MIT, uh, I needed a job and I actually just sort of fell into this research project that was funded by the National Science Foundation to study the natural gas market, which I knew nothing about at all. And so that's basically how I sort of started getting involved with natural gas, learning how to understand the data that was associated with it and how to use that data to do statistical analysis and then also to do forecasting. And so, you know, I was on that project for three years. And and basically that is sort of the foundation from which I eventually built this company, RBAC, and built the various products that we have, you know, based on that original experience there as a graduate student at MIT. Wow. Uh, so, yeah, that's kind of the, um, that was a long version, but that was the short version of the story. I think it's fantastic because um, your company does a great job when it is servicing the uh, natural gas traders, you've got natural gas operators, you've got natural gas midstream uh, folks, and mm-hmm. they all need data, and they need to be able to manage it and say, hey, what's going to go on? Tell us a little bit about your system. 
how does it impact all of these things and all these people? Because th- this is pretty cool stuff. Well, uh, thank you. It is very cool stuff. And, you know, our purpose really is to provide really good tools so that these companies and the individuals, the analysts within these companies can do great analysis in order for the the decision makers and those who uh, decide on investments and how to invest their money and so forth. And policymakers who decide, you know, how to do analysis in support of policies and so forth so that they make good good decisions. And so they make good decisions and good policy. That's, you know, that's our goal. Uh, obviously, as a company, we want to expand and be profitable right. and all of those things. But, you know, from a technical a purpose and a mission point of view, that's what our mission is, is to is to help these companies to make good decisions as far as energy is concerned. Now, the energy companies and have huge amounts of data, Stu. Data is not really a problem in terms of quantity. Quality is another issue. <laughs> and then, you know, working your way through immense amounts of data in order to actually get intelligence from them and to be able to use it correctly is another thing entirely. Right. So, you know, we spend an awful lot of time getting the best data that's available and organizing it in such a way that you can actually use it uh, to do credible forecasting of things like what's the supply going to be in the future of natural right. gas? What's demand going to be? How is that going to affect prices? What would be the effect of additional LNG exports out of North America? You know, all of those kinds of things, uh, which, you know, our companies in North America are very, very interested in. That's a that's a Dr. Brooks. That is a horrible amount of information that you've got to put into the algorithm. I mean, there's so many what ifs and what you just said. Holy smokes. Well, that's true. And so what that also means is when you're looking out into the future, of course, right. uh, there's a lot of uncertainty, you know, even on the weather, as we know, you know, this is right. one of the big drivers of demand all around the world is is weather, you know, in the near in the near term, in the, you know, over the next several days or, or the next couple of months through the next winter and so forth. These are unknowns. So one of the things that you try to do as an analyst is to kind of hedge your bets by doing scenarios that look at, well, if it's a severe, severely cold winter, what would happen? If it's a mild winter, what would happen? And so with these tools, you can do that kind of analysis. In other words, you can do multiple forecasts and then compare the results in order to get and in order to get a reasonable range, right. you know, for what is likely to happen. Um, is is the RBAC tool used for long-term contracts? So because we've seen in the in the natural gas with the geopolitical things going on right now, China has just entered into with Qatar a 20, I believe it was a 23 year contract. And then you have all these other contracts because Europe did not have any long term contracts. So are the contract makers also able to use your software? Well, it's yeah, it's very important for that because you would like to know, you know, if you're a buyer, you know, is it. You know, what, how long, if we're going to make a contract, if we're going to, you know, work out a contract with Qatar or with the United States or Mozambique or somebody, you know, how long should we make that contract for and how much should it be? And, and where's the best place, you know, uh, or is it, is it a good idea to maybe uh, sort of uh, reduce your risk by having multiple contracts with different parties and even different countries? Right. Uh, so, Yes, that is definitely part of what we do with our what we call our global 
gas and LNG uh, modeling system uh, nice. definitely is very important. In fact, I'm actually going to China next month and talking at a conference in China that very subject, which is you know looking at uh, supply risk and uh, you know how to minimize your supply risk. Right you know, through different kinds of LNG contracting and, and so forth. So, yeah, that's very, very important, I think. Wow, that's pretty cool. I'd love to visit with you uh, either while you're there or while when you get back, because that is really cool. Right. Yeah, I would be happy to do that. This will be the second time that I've been to China. I was there in 2018. Right. Uh, and it was extremely. You know, honestly, it was very, very interesting. My first time in China, I went to two different cities, one called Chengdu, which is in the Sichuan province in kind of right. the southwest part of China. And then the second place was in Beijing and mm -hmm. uh, yeah, conferences and meeting with officials and all. And it was very interesting. They were very, very hungry for information, especially for information, actually, strangely enough, for information about liberalized uh, gas markets. In other oh, words, they were, they were quite interested in how did the United States liberalize its market or deregulate, you might say. Right. And, you know, how could they benefit from doing things like that? Uh, I found them to be very nice people and, and uh, very interested. I didn't get right. any kind of, you know, there was nothing negative about that uh, trip. I'm a little bit concerned about this time, uh, just in the fact that over the last <laughs> several years, you know, the countries have gotten a little more antagonistic to each other. But my guess is that I will be received very well and, you know, that the people, again, will be very friendly and interested. Uh, so, you know, uh, we're in a technical field that's not really directly political. And right. uh, generally, you know, people like that, I think, you know, they uh, they see the value in in discussing right. these things with other people who are in their field, no matter what country they come from. Well, what are you seeing come around the corner from this? Uh, you mentioned, I mean, we talked about China. You're going over there with the geopolitical mess going on in Europe. You know, when you sit back and take a look. Part of Europe had a real problem because they didn't have those long-term contracts. And so Germany didn't have those long-term. They were doing what market pricing. And then, you know, Putin got all kind of hairy and it, he started doing his, his things. And now Norway helps pick up that, that issue. And then you have the U.S. getting a lot of benefit out of that. What do you see going on for natural gas prices I think that there is 300 billion, something like that in ships in LNG carriers that's already been bought for all these years going out. There's a lot of people believing in LNG exports from the U.S. Where do you kind of feel where that market is going? There's about 16 questions in there. <laughs> there were, and, and I didn't enumerate them exactly, but uh, let me try to address a couple of them. First of all, actually, Europe did have long-term contracts, but it was not long-term contracts with for LNG. It was pipeline gas, right. uh, long-term contracts with Russia. Now, some of these contracts were getting close to expire. Okay. Uh, okay. Okay. So those things were happening. And right. you know, the main thing, of course, was the volume of gas that was moving across Ukraine. Uh, yeah. And uh, so, you know, that was, of course... One of the main points of contention, you know, between Ukraine and, and Russia was performance of that gas transit across U Ukraine over a number of different years. Anyway, it's a complicated subject. I don't want to get too, too much into it. Okay. Yeah. But 
But the point is that, you know, once the war started and the gas flows were, you know, cut off, basically, right. in some cases, and Europeans also refusing gas as well, you had a situation. And of course, prices went way the heck up. I mean, it was just, you know, right. incredible in 2022, especially initially after, you know, the few months into the war. Right. And there was quite a bit of LNG import capacity that was available, but it was not used very much. And so you are correct about LNG contracts that because they were essentially as a as a continent divesting natural gas over a period of time. Right. They did not have long term LNG contracts for the most part. And this put them in a bind because in order to actually get the gas that they needed, they had to bid enough of a price on the spot market. And of course, the spot market went crazy. Right. So so you did have that situation. They had 21, actually 21 LNG receiving points in Europe. You might not know how many they did have. Uh, But after this, all of a sudden, you know, they have 26 more that are either in service now are going to be built and so forth. So they're more than doubling, you know, their import capacity. And that is really important at the same time that, you know, United States export capacity is increasing. Right. And Qatar's uh, uh, export capacity will be increasing in a few years. And then there's other places, uh, East Africa and so forth, where uh, the supply of LNG could be going up quite substantially over the next uh, 10 years or so. Right. And, uh, you know, the long term view that we have is actually kind of interesting what we've had for a couple of years now uh, or more than a year, which is if Europe and Russia are not able to come to terms. Right. In a few years, it's not going to matter. In other words, you know, Russia is essentially going to work itself, you know, completely out of the game as far as Europe is concerned. And the the problem with that for Russia is that, you know, they don't have too many options. You know, it's not like they can all of a sudden take all that gas that was going to go to Europe and and send it to Asia. They don't have any way of doing that. Right. So, you know, so essentially Russia's kind of shot itself in the foot, uh, you know, as far as this market is concerned. Right. Of course, that's uh, almost a, um, I almost even shouldn't say that because it's obviously a very serious war, you know, that's going on. Uh, but, you know, from an economic point of view, I think is a very, very poor decision on their part. Oh, and absolutely. and uh, it is affecting them very badly and will affect them even worse in the future, I believe. Uh, let me ask ask you this one. Um, China and um, uh, Russia have agreed to several new pipelines and they've contracted those out so that Russia and, and they've, they've really aligned that and China has really kind of, they've been buying everything they can. Uh, the Arctic LNG plant just had their second train come online for Russia. And so Russia is really still building up their export capabilities. So if in the oil space, the dark fleet has arisen and, and you know, uh, Russia is now selling all their stuff, everything they can do in the oil space to uh, India and China, and it was below what the they did. So we have the their LNG exports are starting to come up. And uh, do you see that that whole paradigm that you just mentioned that they may have shot themselves in the foot? And I agree with you 300%, but they still look like they're going to survive. I mean, 
Does that make so, sense? Uh, you know, again, uh, okay, this time you have 17 questions instead of six. <laughs> I am so um, sorry. <laughs> but, um, but actually, let me just straighten out a couple of things and then try right. to address a few of those, if you don't mind. The Absolutely. first thing is, actually, there's, there's only one new uh, pipeline project that has been proposed, not built, but proposed okay. connecting Russia to China. That's called Power of Siberia 2. Uh, there is a Power of Siberia pipeline that is in service. However, it's taking forever to fill up that pipeline. You know, it's already been in service like five years and it's only, you know, less than 50 percent, you know, uh, full. So it's going to be now they're looking at maybe 2027 before that pipeline is full. Right. Uh, China is in a very interesting negotiating position with Russia. Uh, because China actually has other options, you see, but Russia doesn't. Uh, so Turkmenistan is a huge supplier of natural gas and potentially even much more potentially. But they've kind of shot themselves in the foot also in some, to some extent. But they have a new pipeline that's being built uh, to China called uh, the Central Asia China Pipeline D because they already have A, B and C. Right. Uh, and uh, so... Essentially, China can play off the the Turkmen's against the Russians as far as pricing is concerned. Uh, they, they also have all, their own production, which is very substantial. China and they've got all this LNG import capacity, so they have quite a few different options, and they can play this game. But you know, as far as the oil is concerned, I don't really know too much about that. To be honest with you, my my expertise is more in the natural gas arena. Right. Uh, but you did bring up an interesting point about uh, Russian LNG. So, you know, the the issue you have here is, uh, first of all, you know, there's there's one LNG facility, which is just north of Japan uh, called Sakhalin. And and that one is really close to the market. Right. It's very close to Japan, Korea and China. OK, so that one, there's a market for it. It's very straightforward. There's short distance, right. all of these. And, and that plant has been operating at more than 100% capacity uh, for many years, actually, okay, mm -hmm. which you can do in LNG, by the way, you know, the capacity is not really fully the limiting factor, you can you can really you can push it up a bit. What, what's, uh, sorry, I get it. I get excited on this. Uh, what's what's the limiting factor? Well, there are limiting factors, of course, okay. but you know that I guess what I'm saying is the published nameplate capacity is usually right. pretty cons conservative. Conservative. Okay, great. Okay, and so they can, you know, they can tune things up and they can do better than that, generally speaking. Okay. Uh, the the problem with Arctic LNG two and the Yamal LNG facility is right. that they're up in the Arctic. Okay, and it is it is frozen all the way across the top of Russia to the east right. of where they want to go, which is the shortest distance to Asia, but it's frozen eight months out of the year. Right. And the other four months, it still requires the ability of an ice-breaking ice tanker right. to get through. So you can only operate it a third of the year. Right. The rest of the time you have to go west, which means you essentially have to go completely around the world to get to Asia. Wow. It, I mean, it is... So what they end up doing, uh, you know, a lot of it, they do do that. But the other thing is the Chinese especially were very smart uh, during Europe's crisis. And they took some of the cargoes that they owned. And instead of sending them, you know, all the way to China, to the West, they, right. just, sent them to, they just sent them to Europe. And then made the extra and, <laughs> At astronomical rates, you know. Uh, so 
So they made a huge amount of profit when they didn't really need that LNG, you know, during that time period. Now, uh, Russia has, I think, four or five uh, nuclear uh, icebreakers. I mean, and but you can't it only operates, you know, what you said, three months out of the year. Well, they do. They do need those. And they're actually for Arctic LNG, too. They're building 15 more of those. OK, so uh, they're building 15 more of the, what they call the Arc 7s. OK, which have some degree of of um, of ice breaking capability. Now, you know, when the ice is really thick, you're right. They need to actually have another ice breaking, you know, nuclear ice breaking um, right. Not a tanker, but a, a carrier, whatever you want to call it, of uh, a ship, you know, to kind of break the ice so that the right. tankers can move through it. So they have that. It's very costly. So they are doing one thing that is actually pretty smart, and they're building a transshipment terminal on both the north side and the, I'm sorry, on the west side and the east side of Russia in Murmansk and Kamchatka so that they don't have to go so far. Because from those uh, those two facilities, they can use regular tankers to take the LNG to the, you know, to the remains of the market, uh, the rest of the way to the market. So it's it's a smart That's way of, smart. of dealing with things, but they still have the ice to contend with. And, it, and it's very expensive. So right. you know, the Russian government has given all kinds of incentives to Novatech. Uh, to do this, you know, tax incentives and other kinds of things so that their costs are quite a bit lower that enable this to actually happen. Uh, but if you don't mind, I'll just say one more thing. And that is there's always the threat that Europe is going to say we're not going to take any more Russian LNG uh, because even though they've cut the pipeline they takes out of the pipeline and very minimal amounts of Russian gas is coming into Europe by pipeline. Actually, the amount of LNG that's coming into Europe is more than what it was before. So there are you know, some threats that certain European countries have made uh, to say to make it illegal for uh, European countries to receive that LNG if it's Russian. So if that were to happen, then right. Novatech would have some big trouble. and. And Europe would have to get uh, LNG elsewhere. So I think that there is the market to do it, though. What point do people start getting grumpy, Dr. Brooks, when, you know, they can't heat their house? And uh, like in uh, Germany, they shut down their last nuclear uh, reactors and they had to buy they're now buying nuclear energy from France. People are starting to get a little grumpy. Don't you think that they would start uh, having some kind of influence on on that? I mean. Yeah, their costs are going way up. Uh, Germany's, the electricity costs are are huge. And uh, the other thing that's perhaps even more uh, important there is that their industry, the cost to their industry has gone to the point where, you know, people are talking about the de-industrialization of Germany. Exactly. Uh, You know, and, and, you know, the world depends on German expertise in machine making and other kinds of things. I mean, it's a very, very important country. Uh, I mean, this is good for some other countries, you know, and as far as competition is concerned, but very bad for Germany and very bad for Europe. So whether there's enough of a pushback, Stu, you know, from the people and the um, industry and the companies, I don't know. I don't know if there's enough pushback. The Greens are very, very strong in Europe. But uh, I think this week also had, was it BASF? They closed a plant for fertilizer because not enough natural gas in Germany. 
And, and I think that was this past week. Uh, so, you know, fertilizer affects the food, natural gas, yes. uh, you know, f- affects everything else. So we have a second order and a third order magnitude of problems <laughs> that natural gas can fix or cause. Yeah. If you oppose natural gas and, you know, just want to shut it down, I mean, you know, it's a very unthinking or un educated view of things because there's not a recognition of everything that natural gas is used for around this planet. Uh, So if you, if you get some uh, activist who is trying to communicate, you know, to some other activist on their cell phone, right. Point out to them that that cell phone is largely made, you know, all the, from natural gas and, and all the metals and so forth. I mean, so there's a lot that they don't really understand about how modern Modern uh, civilizations, uh, modern economies are based on these things. Mm-hmm. And uh, anyway, um, you know, I think it is important for people like yourself and myself and others to try to sort of gently educate these people, you know, right. into, you know, the truth about these things. And um, there's, you know, yeah, go ahead. I get excited, sir, talking to you. So I apologize. Uh, why, when you looked at solar, uh, why didn't you stay with solar and or move to natural gas? Do you think you're going to go back to solar? I think, you know, of course, you know, once I was in graduate school and I got very interested in learning more about the energy industry and, and the focus has been on natural gas. And I really learned how to do, you know, how to do the various components of analysis and, and uh, econo- you know, uh, mathematical modeling associated with the natural gas market and so forth. So my, right. my emphasis has been on that particular area. Now, I have actually done things that are outside of natural gas directly, but associated like the relationship between natural gas and power, the relationship, electric power and the relationship between natural gas and natural gas liquids, which are very important for uh, chemicals and plastics and other kinds of things. So I have done those kinds of things. I was very interested in solar energy. And even in fact, uh, as a graduate student, I also was actually employed by this Arthur D. Little company and was very interested because they had some processes for making silicon wafers, you know, that were used in making uh, solar cells and so forth. And I thought that was, you know, very, very interesting. And I even came up with, you know, my own wild ideas on how to make things, you know, more, uh, you know, to make solar more practical, you know, more efficient and, and so forth. But I wasn't really an engineer or a scientist along those lines, so it didn't really carry those things through. But I think, you know, over the years, I've I've gotten less uh, optimistic, you might say, about solar energy and and these renewables. And I tend to think a little bit differently, I think, than what a lot of the uh, discussions that you hear when you hear things like natural gas is a transition fuel and so forth. Honestly, I think solar and wind are the transitions. Okay, these are the transition (laughs) generation techniques. Uh, or, you know, because they're not going to last that long. Eventually, at some point, first of all, they're very, it's a total lie that they're cheap. They are very, very expensive. And the amount of cost and degradation of the environment to make the materials and to mine the stuff and all of that kind of thing is ignored, you know, by those who are, you know, the radicals that, you know, that just want to replace fossil fuels immediately. Right. 
But I think in the long run, you know, what long means, I don't know. But in the long run, you know, researchers are going to find ways of controllable fusion power. And, you know, we've already started to see some positive experiments. And I think in who knows, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, it might be uh, that we will have that. And then truly we have something that is doesn't produce radioactive byproducts and right. is essentially infinite in terms of its capacity. And I think, you know, at that point, the world won't need natural gas um, for power generation, at least. But right. it won't need it won't need wind or it won't need solar either. Right. Uh, so so these things will will happen eventually. You know, right now they have their niches, you know, solar and right. wind have their niches and and they will continue to do so. But I think that uh, natural gas is going to have its niche for a very long time in the future as well. Well, I love the way you think, Dr. Brooks. And in the re- I mean, I've been trying to find the, the sweet spot because I hear that people are saying, oh, a wind turbine can last 30 years. I'm only finding with my crayon math. I went to Oklahoma State University. So, you know, I got a crayon and I can only find eight years And then the economics of that does not make sense. And then you sit there with a rough ballpark, depending on how much steel and everything else, carbon net zero is around 10. So this thing does not even meet its zero carbon footprint in all the ones I've been begging for help and I'm only getting part of the numbers. So you are dead on right with everything that you just said. So uh, that's pretty good analysis on that. Well, well, thanks. And yeah, I mean, you know, I think many of us, we're not necessarily, you know, rabidly pro fossil fuel or whatever. We just would like to see honesty and and credibility in the analyses rather than narratives. Uh, so I think that that's, you know, people who are really nice. scientific minded uh, are fair. And, you know, I mean, if it could be shown that actually there was a whole supply chain for solar and wind that when you right. really truly calculated everything and you took into account the externalities of the mining and, and you took into account the length of the supply chain and how long it takes for the mines to get, to get certified and approved yep. and developed. And I mean, you you do the complete analysis and then just look at the results and make a choice. I think we would all be most people would be willing to do that. I don't I don't have any stock in oil companies or gas right. companies or 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 solar companies or wind companies for that matter. Um, but you know I would just like to see you know good analysis and people able to use facts to make good decisions. I think that that's where I am. Well, Dr. Brooks, thank you so much for your time. If a CEO of Chenier or a CEO of any company would call you up, what would you tell them about what you're working on? Well, first of all, I'd say congratulations to Chenier, that's for sure. I mean, they took a company that was on the verge of bankruptcy and made it into the world beater, you know, so... You know, congratulations to all the people that made that happen. And um, Venture Global came out of nowhere, you know, uh, to be a very actually to to be on the verge of a very successful company. And certainly, um, you know, I think that, you know, a lot of these companies, you know, have really done some incredible things. Well, I would say, you know, to them, look, if if you are interested in um, how the markets could affect your company going forward. Uh, under different scenarios, and you don't feel like you've got the tools in-house already, you know, to answer those problems, we do. 
We do. Nice. We have those tools. And, you know, we have the methodology. We've got the data. Uh, we can, you know, we can uh, provide you with the with the structure that you can put your own market intelligence in there and come up with, you know, your own solutions on, you know, what the best strategy would be for either expansion or for contracts or for, you know, whatever else that you want to do. So, uh, of course, you know, uh, self-serving, we would be happy, you know, to have them all as customers. Uh, that was very that was very good. Um, if somebody was wanting to reach out to you on your 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 uh, LinkedIn, you're on LinkedIn, and your mm-hmm. website is uh, rbac.com. Yeah, very com. simple. Uh, and uh, so just reach out to you either that way, or uh, I'd also like to put all your show notes in there, all your contact information. And I really want to have you back. Because I am so excited to hear about your China trip. I think that'll be phenomenal. I think it will be, too. So uh, thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. And, yeah, I would be happy to do it again. And, you know, you know, we'll talk about some other things and what happened in China. Sounds great. Thank you, sir. Appreciate your time. Okay. Thank you. Thank you.